All right, well, we're a few minutes over. We can go ahead and get started here. We'll be picking up back in Luke chapter 18. And we are uh, making our way rather rapidly now through the parables. We have a few more toward the tail end of Luke before we have more or less covered all of the parables. Oh, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, Okay, so just quick recap for anyone who couldn't hear me, maybe online. But so in chapter 17, you have Christ talking about the coming of the kingdom. You've got Noah and Lot, these scenarios, the flood and the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah as types of the final judgment that is to come. So that's going to be the context of the parable of the persistent widow in 18. We're wrapping the parables up to the point where we'll be at the eschatological parables or the parables generally categorized as specific to the end times, the final judgment, those kinds of themes. So that's just kind of where we are. And we'll open with prayer and then we'll jump right into chapter 18 of Luke's gospel. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the ongoing pastoral guidance of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. May he enlighten our hearts and minds through his word that we indeed would always pray and not grow weary or faint, that we would persist in calling out to you, knowing that you are faithful and just, and you will indeed act swiftly to vindicate your people and work all things for the good of those who love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable. Now, the them here seems to, it could certainly encompass a mixed crowd. But if you're just glancing back at 17, you see the Pharisees are asking him when the kingdom of God would come. That's verse 20 of 17. He gives his answer. And then 22, he says to his disciples what follows. You then get a question at 37. And they said to him, they presumably the disciples here, where Lord? And then he gives them the rather cryptic and uh, kind of spicy answer where the corpses there, the vultures were gathered. That is, it's obvious or it will be obvious. Then, so when he tells them a parable, it seems to be clearly the disciples in view, I think, not only based on that grammar, but then based on the comment or based on the content of the parable itself. So he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. So to continuously pray and to, pers- and to pray persistently, that's going to be the first theme. And the second is that we not lose heart. The language there, maybe a little more accurately, less poetically, that we not faint or become weary. And those two things go hand in hand, don't they? Because to grow faint or weary spiritually is then to cease to pray. And if you're praying, then you're active and vigorous. And that prayer also has a way of making you active and vigorous. There's an analogy here to running or working out or do anything else that as you do it, it becomes easier and it sort of inspires you to do it more, especially like if you're spending all this time walking or running or lifting weights, and then it comes time to eat the Twinkie. You just think, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, (laughs) it's going to, how many, how many more minutes would I have to spend on the treadmill? I'm not going to do that. Uh, But 
but then if if that's not happening and the Twinkie comes calling, it's real easy to just go, okay, why not three or four? And so that's, you know, there's this analogy even in just the the human psychology, the human makeup um, that has its uh, its relationship to the spiritual realities that the more we're praying and the more we're active, the more we find it to be easy. And sometimes it, all it takes is getting out of our rhythm a little bit. And all of a sudden it becomes really hard to get going again and easy to despair and easy to lose heart. Autobiographically, I kind of hate vacations because they ruin my routine. And that's, I to tell you the truth, that's what I'm struggling with already on Monday. I got back on Saturday and it's like, get back in the saddle. It's, it's already harder than it was, you know, only off for a week, so to speak, or disruptive for a week. Okay, so those two things connected anyway, always to pray not to lose heart. And then just to put some concrete uh, guidance uh, to your ears here on this, a reminder that the catechism, this is following a tradition that goes, it's thoroughgoing through the Western church um, and also then thoroughgoing in the Old Testament church. And that's morning and evening prayer. And then prayers at mealtimes. So if you're talking like a baseline of what is, what is, always to pray mean and what would sort of be a barometer of spiritual health are you exercising it's when you may wake up as the catechism says make the sign of the cross and then it gives a little it gives a little prayer outline even stripping it down to something just like the our father is a great place to start and any other little petitions that come to mind that you want to pray for and then you're living prayer to prayer. You're living morning prayer to breakfast prayer, breakfast prayer to lunch prayer, lunch prayer to dinner prayer, and dinner prayer to the prayer at the close of the day, where again you make the sign of the cross to close of prayer. So that when we're talking about praying continuously or praying always, and you hear St. Paul saying that, I don't think that that necessarily means like, you know, as you're typing your email, you've got some part of your brain that's praying the Psalms. I don't think that that's what he means. I think he means that you're regular in your prayers. So that would make it a little more concrete for us. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to become nihilistic, especially in this day and age. And so this parable is uh, very fitting for us, I think, and very important for us to absorb. So verse two, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge, I love this, who neither feared God nor respected man. How good of a judge is this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like you could do it any more succinctly. Say this is a bad guy who's failing at everything. Uh, he neither fears God nor respects man, and his whole and and the whole ability for him to do his job well is predicated upon fear of God and respect for man. All right, verse three. And there was a widow in that city. Now, just worth pointing out because it's not so obvious to us, but a widow has no standing. She's lost, she's lost her husband. The implication here, she's going to do business. She has no sons. She, she's, this, is a, this is truly a second-class citizen in the ancient world, someone with no standing, and she's going to a judge, and the judge has no reason to hear her whatsoever. So this judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man, what does he think of this widow? Thinks of her as nothing. I mean, she's a grasshopper. She's dust. She's just of no account. There, and there is zero consequence for him to just ignore her forever. All right, so there's a widow in that city 
And here's the key. It's emphasized in the Greek. It may be in a way that it's hard for the English to do, but it is nonetheless there, who kept coming. So persistently coming, habitually coming, regularly coming, kept coming to him and saying, give me justice. I think just is a great translation here. Other, um, uh, give me um, vindication or avenge me are other uh, equal translations. I think justice is fine here. Give me justice or give me vindication. So she's been wronged in some way. We don't know how an injustice has been done to her. She has to bear it. The only one who can rectify the situation is this judge. Give me justice against my adversary, against this one who has done the injustice unto me. Okay, verse 4, for a while he, the judge, refused. But afterward he said to himself, (laughs) such a great inner monologue, (laughs) though I neither fear God nor respect man. Uh, Sometimes people talk about humor in Jesus preaching. I think this is hilarious. I think as Jesus was saying this, people would have been chuckling to say the least, I think. There, yeah, great inner monologue. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, pestering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Yeah, um, a real literal reading is just give, give me a black eye by her continual coming. Um, as, if her, as if her persistent presence is like this physical assault to his very being. I don't know. We've all kind of had that, haven't you? Like you, you pop outside and the president of the HOA is there and you just go, ah. <laughs> imagine if he or she was after you or something. You know, there's, uh, I'm sure that by the time this judge had uh, received daily admonitions from this widow, he just saw her coming and it like ruined his day. So he doesn't want to uh, get beat down by her continual coming. All right. Now, what's interesting is in verse six, the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. So he draws our attention back to what the unrighteous judge says. Here's the essence of it. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, I'm entirely unprincipled. And I don't know this person with who has no standing. I don't owe her anything. But because she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That's what the Lord wants us to reflect on. And then seven, he makes his point. And will not God give justice to his elect? So notice the difference. Contrast God with this unrighteous judge, and you couldn't have two more polar opposites. And that's the point. If even an unrighteous judge will finally give in, how much more will God not finally give in, but rather quickly answer? And so that's the pivot. It's a beautiful parable of contrast. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Will he delay long over them? And of course, the way that this is constructed, the answer is no. So will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Yes, absolutely. How much more so than this judge who even so gave justice to the widow? Will he delay long over them? Absolutely not. And that's reflected then in eight. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily or quickly. So then that's the call to not grow weary or faint, that even as we're praying, and it seems as though God is not giving us justice or vindication or uh, avenging us, we must trust that he will indeed give justice to us speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Which is a strange statement, but I think less strange if you connect that with the preceding chapter where we're talking about the end with Noah and Lot and the flood of fire that is coming upon the earth. And when you connect that with the first verse or two, again, from this chapter, He told them a parable to the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. That is to say, even though the Lord answers, it's going to be difficult enough that men may well give up and no longer have faith. So that seems to be the clear observation behind this question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On her. It has a rhetorical, uh, rhetorically challenging effect, doesn't it? it? Makes you say, well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> and I want to pray and act in such a way as to retain faith. And I want to be warned that it's going to seem very difficult, or it's going to just be very difficult. And it's going to seem as though maybe God does not answer our prayers speedily, hastily, giving justice, etc. But we must not lose heart. We must trust that he will, in his good and perfect timing, and indeed speedily, uh, bring an answer, bring justice. Okay? Yeah, please. How is this viewed viewed as a work? Well, what's the problem with viewing it as a work? Mm, I see. I see. Yeah, well, so I would I would say I don't think Jesus is saying we have to work to keep our faith. It is a good work as change that. I don't even. I mean, yes, I think so. Ultimately, I just think we have to work too hard to get it into that category. I think it's easier just to think in the way that Jesus Himself has couched this. So again, contrast the the evil judge who doesn't want to do his job, but he does it because the woman's persistent. Is that how you know God to be? Do you know him to be evil? No, you know him to be good. You know him to be your gracious heavenly father, who alone is good. And you can think back to earlier in Luke, where Jesus says, if a child, if your child asks you for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent? Or if your child asks you for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? course not then if you who are evil know how to give unto your children what is good how much more so see the contrast again 
will your heavenly father give? And then Jesus cites the highest good, the Holy Spirit unto you. So that would be another aspect, whereas if even this unrighteous judge will give justice, then how much more so the perfectly righteous and only good God will he answer and give justice speedily? Okay, now where God doesn't seem to do that, because our faith is such a weak, fickle thing, we're tempted to grow weary and faint and stop praying and stop believing. Is that a defect on the part of God? No, it's a defect on the part of us. It's a particular form of rejecting God. Because, of course, buried therein is what? The claim that we know better than God. If I'm praying that God act and act now, and he's not, and I get angry with him <laughs> to the point where I'm losing faith, then really what, what the kernel that lies within that is this idea that I know better than God, or I'm more righteous than God, and God is not acting according to the standard to which I am holding him. That's putting oneself in the, on the divine throne and casting God down as a subject. All right, so with those dynamics in mind, clearly then our Lord's instructing us not to turn away from the Father when it seems as though he doesn't answer our prayers, but to remind ourselves of who he is, contrast him with the wicked judge, remind ourselves of who he is, and indeed um, then persist in our prayers, just as the widow persisted, knowing that because he's good, he will ultimately answer so I don't know that we need to, I mean, obviously, is this a fruit of faith? Yes, it's a fruit of faith. But he's really talking about a spiritual condition that can befall us. And he's giving us a teaching that itself prevents that. An instruction that itself prevents that falling away. Meditate on who God is, persist in faith, persist in prayer. The alternative is to fall away. Don't fall away. So I hopefully, hopefully that answers your question without necessarily like over-categorizing that. All right. Anything else we want to touch on? I think that's all I really want to do there. Yeah. So that's a curious question. Faith, faith in what? Because if, if you just have faith that God exists, and then he exists to hear your prayer. That's one thing. But if you have faith that he will answer your prayer, then that would be another thing. So I understand your question about should it be a work or it sounds like a work, right? Is that what you're saying? So what do you think? Does it still seem like a work to you? Well, like you said, it's a fruit of faith and it's, uh, it's God saying this is how you know uh, your faith will be sustained by by connecting with me with prayer that that's my my so it is a work it's not a work for salvation separated from that but it's a way in which we can God sustains us in our faith that, that's my takeaway and connected to him and in his will and his will be done so he's yeah, I think maybe another just insight into the text that may be helpful to reframe it a little bit. 
should we be concerned that we're being obnoxious to God? So I take it from a different angle. I know there's a God. I know he hears me. He doesn't seem to be answering me. Maybe it would be pious for me to not, I don't want to be disrespectful. (laughs) He's, you know, and and I don't know, maybe there's even a sense in which that's, that's true, or that's true of certain prayers. You you find this in St. Paul who says, you know, I, I asked three times about this thorn in my flesh. Now, he says he received an answer that, that'll take us down another rabbit hole that we shouldn't go down. But the answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I, sometimes when I encounter that, I'm like, wow, you prayed three times? <laughs> you know? So um, I, I don't think that, that, that there's that sense, uh, you know, I, I mean, that, yeah, that Pauline kind of question. That's, if that's one side of the coin, this is the other side of the coin. Because, again, Jesus directs us back to the words of the unrighteous judge who says, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. What are we to meditate on there? That God is not offended by our pestering, by our bothering. So there's an invitation. Maybe that's... I don't think that's too strong. In fact, there's an invitation to pester and bother. In fact, it's kind of the teaching of Jesus. Pester and bother and persist in your prayer and don't lose heart and God's justice is coming. But just know that uh, the persistence of prayer itself isn't a sin. And constantly praying for the same thing over and over isn't a sin. There's that, uh, there's that famous example, though. I can't remember how many years. Do you remember Augustine's mother? He was a hooligan and a heathen, and she prayed, I think, for well over a decade, who knows, maybe more, that he would be converted, and ultimately he was. And I think he cites her in his confessions as the reason ultimately for his conversion was for prayers. So there would be an example of persisting in prayer, and it it ultimately uh, bearing fruit. So I think that that's another insight we can gain from this when we look at, you know, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, not become faint or weary, is um, don't let the devil get his toehold in there saying, well, you're annoying God. That's why he's not hearing you. You prayed too many times, and now he's frustrated and disgusted with you. Uh, No, according to Jesus, that's not a possibility. Well, this one more comment about this. Um, By him saying that there is a lack I think the assumptions there that there are there, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're one of the elect, you're starting there, and then you don't need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, and implied there. I mean, I thank you for drawing our attention there. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Will not God give justice to his elect? He elects us before the foundation of the world, apart from anything we've done. So that helps clarify that particular point. Great observation. Then likewise, the elect who cry to him day and night. So even as we persist in crying out to him, will he not give us justice? He will. You know, I, maybe this maybe this is a, just a tiny tangent that's worth going down. So in kind of our effeminized Christianity, we've come to the conclusion that it's wrong to pray for vengeance. Or it's wrong to pray for vindication. It's wrong to pray for justice because that's not gospel. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a 
Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, that's that's a complete twisting and distortion of the scriptures. Vengeance isn't a sin. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And so to cry out to him for vengeance, even in Revelation. So even when you have saints in heaven, these are the martyrs under the throne of God, stripped of their sinful nature. So sinless human beings under the throne of God in Revelation, they're crying out, how long? How long until you vindicate us, O Lord? How long until you take vengeance upon those who shed our blood? So there's that prayer in heaven by sinless saints. Vengeance and the desire for vengeance or vindication and the desire to be vindicated is not a sin. In fact, it's part and parcel of the new heavens and the new earth. So I think that this is something we definitely need to recover, and it's thoroughly biblical. And that's the idea. So. So often we're so individualistic that we just think of like, oh, the the main part of, of the whole conclusion is that, you know, God absolves me and I'm in. And okay, fine, fine. But there's more to it than that. And part of the heaven of heaven is the vindication. And part of, we're going to get into this as we get into the, not this next parable, I don't think, but the one after with the minus. Living now even though it's in certain ways, even though it, it's like has a kind of fruitlessness to it or seeming fruitlessness to it is living for the finality of the scales being balanced. So what we're doing now isn't, I mean, if you were to say, what's a wise course of action through this life, Christianity is not that answer. <laughs> okay. But if you live with a, with a biblical Christianity that knows that the scales will be balanced in the end, that justice will be rendered, that vindication will be done, then it's the wisest way you can live. So to live in such a way that we would be vindicated, not here in this life, and not by any court of man, sinful man who hates God, but that we would be vindicated by God himself in the heavenly court of the final judgment. So, again, very beautifully, part and parcel of the gospel is not just that, that God says you're forgiven, but that God will actually vindicate you, prove you to be right when everybody else thought you were wrong, exalt you when everybody else was shaming you, and maybe even things you bear in your life, episodes of your life where you bear shame and you go, well, I thought I did the, wrong, the right thing, but it sure didn't pay out because everybody treated me like I did the wrong thing. But look, here I've analyzed this. Here's God's word. Here's what I did. I clean conscience about it. Um, that to have that vindication, I mean, how sweet will that feel? But that's part of it. That's even part of the martyrs. Wise and wisdom and prudence, according to the earth, would be like, well, give the little pinch of salt to Caesar. Tell the little white lie. Live. You can go on preaching the gospel and loving people. But the martyrs were like. No, take my life. I don't care. I'm not compromising, not an inch, not a single grain of salt for Caesar, nothing. That's foolishness in the eyes of the world. But who in the end vindicates them? Who in the end rewards them? Who in the end says that sacrifice was higher wisdom than all the earthly wisdom put together? So that vindication is part of the gospel and part of the sweetness of what's to come. So it's a little micro tangent that I think we gain a window into from this text with the idea that justice is clearly good and clearly something that God will render unto his elect in this life or in that which is to come. 
that also then means that we don't pit the, the justice against the gospel. That's kind of another mistake because the two actually enmesh perfectly. And St. Paul says that so succinctly, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's no pitting grace and justice against each other. Grace and justice are two aspects of the one God. Speculative, but in this way of thinking, it would be uh, pretty understandable if the widow in this case were pleading because the bad guy was responsible for the damage of the husband. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. That would be a quite poignant. If that's inferred or not, who knows? Um, he's The adversary is definitely a bad guy because he's the anti-dikon, the uh, dikao righteous. So he's, the, he's clearly a bad guy in this. So she has been wronged. Clarify that what you just, the translation you just said, was that the translation of the word they used for adversary? For adversary, yeah. Anti-dikon, it looks like. And that, uh, I mean, transliterated like D-I-K is like the root for righteousness. Or the root of justice. Okay, so again, just to kind of zoom out and that we've been investigating the trees. What's the, what's the whole forest look like? Pray continuously and don't lose heart. That's the whole point of the, if you take anything else away from this parable, then, then that you've kind of distorted it. So don't do that. The whole point of the parable is that we would persist and that we would know that God is righteous, is just, and will render justice speedily unto his elect. Okay. On to nine. Verse 9, that is, of chapter 18, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And I think that's a fair enough translation. So just to, again, give you a slightly different flavor, he also told this parable to some who were persuaded in themselves that they were righteous Okay, that's the first part. The second part is, and treated others with contempt. So in our, as we've looked at these parables through Luke, who are we chiefly talking about? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are everywhere doing this. And from time to time, Jesus is pointing it out. I think even more frequently, Luke is pointing it out in the narrative. So again, this fits the descriptor of the Pharisees perfectly. They trust or are persuaded within themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those two things go together because, again, that's the specific flavor of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It's a relative self-righteousness. The the religion of the Pharisees is not, I'm completely sinless, therefore God should let me in. Uh, The righteousness of the Pharisees is I'm better off than all these other sinners. So God should let me in. That's a more accurate uh, view of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. So then we see this reflected very poignantly in Jesus' next parable. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So both Jews going up to the temple to pray, one though um, seen uh, as contemptible, the tax collector, and the other as exemplary, the Pharisee. The Pharisee, and the grammar's a little weird, standing by himself is just fine. It's probably a little overly literal, but standing toward himself is also an option. He prayed thus. They leave the, yeah, yeah, well, God, I thank you. Which this has, this has really interesting kind of secondary connotations. So it's Eucharisto, which is a common word for giving thanks. It's where we get the word Eucharist. And so again, in a secondary reflection, you can see what his Eucharist is. Is it the sacrifice that Christ has given him? <laughs> ah, no. I thank you that I am not like other men. So again, it's it's a subtle point, but an important one. Notice he's not saying, look, I've got all my sins taken care of. I'm the best guy that's ever existed. The law, I keep the law perfectly. I don't know of any Pharisees that really made that claim, but he says, I'm not like other men. Now, um, interesting here because a possible read, this is one of the more difficult, this, uh, this parable may be, maybe more than any, has a whirlpool effect. We, maybe we'll get into that as we discuss. It has a kind of whirlpooling effect. Um, that is, the more you think about it, uh, the more you see that it's got this kind of inescapable vortex nature to it where um, you have to be really careful or else you get sucked in. So one, one aspect of that is, look what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. So maybe he's a grace alone theologian. <laughs> God, I thank you that by your grace, you've made me better than all these other guys. All right. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners. So thieves, robbers, that whole nexus of words come in. Extortioners, great. Unjust, just flat out unrighteous. Uh, adulterers. Yeah, and here's the nasty part, or even like this tax collector. Okay, then he gives us a little resume. I fast twice a week, which, um, by the way, is Monday and Thursday. That's when the Jews, especially the Pharisees, fasted Mondays and Thursdays, which is why uh, the earliest extant catechism we have, um, the Didache, instructs Christians to fast on Wednesday and Friday <laughs> in distinction, lest we be like the Pharisees. All right. So I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, in Luke's gospel, so the fasting twice a week is not an outright command. It's not demanded by the Old Testament. And then the tithing is interesting because uh, one of Jesus' critiques of the Pharisees is that they tithe tithe down to the mint and cumin. Okay, so these are like tiny little spices. I mean, I don't know. It always conjures this like ridiculous. 
it's hilarious. This ridiculous image in my mind. These guys so scrupulous about about tithing, you know, 10% for everything that they go out to their little herb garden and clip off like, you know, a tenth of the leaf to give to God. And he's kind of mocking this because as they do this, their doctrine subverts the clear word of God. And so it's all this kind of scrupulosity, um, this kind of uh, hypocrisy. So both of those things are kind of loaded within Jesus, the larger context of Jesus' own sermonizing and preaching. That he fasts twice a week, gives tithes of all he gets. Anyway, that's his resume. That's what he presents. It's kind of also a little bit of a weak resume. Be that as it may, 13, we get the contrast. But the tax collector... Standing far off. So one is standing far off and one is standing by himself or toward himself. I mean, I think there's something to be made there, but I think it's pretty subtle. Both of these men may be standing off from each other, if not from a larger crowd. Two different, two very different standing offs, though. One, because he doesn't consider himself part of the hoi polloi or the common sinners, and the other because he considers himself unworthy to stand in their presence. That may well be the case. There's Anyway, there's room there to think, and Jesus probably does that intentional as is his way. There's room there to think. Okay, so the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. In contrast to the guy who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying God. And here I do think is a little bit of a translational mistake. I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I think it would just be God make atonement for me. God be merciful to me. It's not the eleison word that we say, Kiri eleison, Lord have mercy. It's not the common word for mercy. In fact, it's the language of uh, hilasthete, that's the form, but the hilasterion is the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the lamb is poured. He's saying more than forgive me my sins. He's saying more than have mercy on me. He's saying make atonement for me. The only way I will be cleansed is by the blood of, by the blood of the lamb poured out upon the mercy seat, the hilasterium. That language pops up in Romans. Paul talks about Christ being the hilasterion of God, the mercy seat. <laughs> So more there than mercy. It's not wrong. It's just not as accurate as it could be. God make atonement for me is a better translation. So now again, contrast that in the, you know, again, the second reaches, this is secondary reflecting, but the one guy's Eucharisto is his own greatness. This guy's Eucharisto by contrast is the sacrifice made by God given unto him. And the overtones of the fully developed Christianity, you can see the Lord's Supper being that sacrifice, that hilasterion made present for us, where the blood of the lamb does indeed touch him and cleanse him, entering into his very lips. He beats his breast so, uh, you know, his posture, he's, he's downturned. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast, 
kind of a ritual ceremonial, but an external expression of an internal reality and the whole body connected with what's going on in the soul, which is ways in which we've kind of become a little Gnostic as Americans in terms of how we do our, you know, everything's always internal and spiritual and <laughs> that kind of thing. But here the body on the outside and the soul on the inside reflecting the same reality. So his posture changes. He's not lifting up his eyes to heaven. He's beating his breast, a sign of humility, a sign of uh, disgust with himself, of shame. And instead of God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So wonderful, wonderful contrast. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the heart of the parable, is that contrast, the two addresses to God. Then what Jesus says next, I think this is very important for us to focus in on. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, righteous in God's sight, rather than the other. Here's, that's the obvious, I think. I mean, even it's obvious to us. It's stunning for him to say in immediate context, his immediate context. But then here's the most important part, because I think sometimes too much is done with this parable. That is to say, it gets distorted as we drive it further and further away from the actual point that Jesus is making. What he says next is the key. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So going back then to verse nine, some are trusting and he tells in themselves or persuaded within themselves that they're righteous and they treat others with contempt. These are they who exalt themselves and exalt themselves over others. And so then as he says, they will be humbled. They leave not justified, which also means not saved. I mean, ultimately, it's not not in right relationship to God, not um, repentant and forgiven, not saved, all of those things. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what are some ways in which I think that this parable has maybe been abused over the years? It just... I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but there's a way in which this parable can be misunderstood to say, well, there's no difference between any one sinner or another. They're all the same. Mm, that's not what Jesus is saying. For all we know, this tax collector may have been a greater sinner, objectively speaking, than the Pharisee. That's not the point. The point um, is rather how they address God. One exalts himself and is cast down. The other humbles himself and is exalted. So if we use this parable to say, you know, oh, anyone who would uh, make any reference to any degrees of sin or any degrees of sinners falls in violation of this parable. That's not actually a good or accurate claim. It's actually an abuse of the parable. The parable is rather that we, as individual sinners, humble ourselves before God. We plead guilty of all sins. And 
we cry out for that atonement for the blood of the lamb to cleanse us. We stand before him, not in our own righteousness, not in our own comparative righteousness, but solely in the righteousness that he gives through the sacrifice of his son. That's the point. And that in humbling ourselves that way, we are exalted in Christ. That's the point. The opposite is some form of self-righteousness. Don't do that. That's the other point. Okay. But to extrapolate anything beyond that, I think is, uh, is really toxic and is one of the ways that this has been, uh, this parable has been abused as of late to sort of like the idea that you can't call out egregious sins because, oh, you're just, you know, in other people, because you're just the Pharisee in this story. Uh, no, before God, I plead guilty of all sins. That doesn't denude me of the ability to point out, doesn't denude you of the ability to point out gross, crass sins on the part of others. Where this, where this theology, this kind of false theology, this kind of mangling of Jesus' parables really um, starts to snowball is when, for example, and some of you know what I'm talking about, egregious sins like pedophilia or homosexuality are referred to as specks in our neighbor's eye. Well, we should really be concerned about the logs in our own. I couldn't think of a more egregious twisting of uh, the scriptures in order to kind of create this egalitarianism of sin, where all sins are equal. And not only is that just sort of conceptually an error, but it's also very dangerous. Whereas if you treat a little old lady who, you know, occasionally has angry thoughts toward her neighbor as every bit as much of a sinner as a pedophile, you know, after all, they're just specks in my neighbor's eye. So why can't they both just teach Sunday school class? I mean, it's obvious why they can't both just teach Sunday school class. All right. But when we've devised a theology that undermines that, we can be we can be completely assured that our theology has gone off the rails. So that's that's really my own my my point there is don't let this parable or any others for that matter be abused to serve this sort of theology or theological move that seeks to minimize and equalize all sins as if they were the same. That's not Jesus project here or anywhere else. And it's not good for the church to do that. That's very well taken, but there's also another truth that our introduction when if it wasn't for Christ righteousness, mm-hmm. we all end up in the same place. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, even even if you live a perfect life and point zero percent was you know it was probably just go there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're all equally condemned under the law. We're all equally damned. We all equally fall under the category of sinner. Those kinds of statements are true. Uh, as long as I think we immediately follow that up with, but not everyone is equally a sinner. Not everyone will experience hell the same way. And all sins certainly aren't equal. Jesus talks about uh, when he's before Pilate, he says, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. But again, if we're so far out that we're we're fishing for these kinds of proof texts, we've already lost our minds because even just the most baseline common sense tells you there are degrees of sin. I mean, what's different? Your your son disobeying you in some little thing or your son setting the house on fire? Well, they're both sins. They're both equal. Nobody believes that. Nobody treats it. 
not even the not even the left hand kingdom does that. Like, oh, you stole a dollar. That's exactly the same as embezzling embezzling seven billion. No, of course not. There's different degrees of sin. There's different degrees of punishment. There's different degrees of effects of that sin upon a person. So uh, it, it's incumbent upon us to keep that all in mind if we're just going to be sane in this insane age. And least of all, do we want to twist the scriptures and, and twist the gospel and twist Jesus' teaching into some sort of egalitarianizing of sin, where all sins are equal and all sinners are equal, and um, that wrecks everything. It also, by the way, just does havoc on one's own soul, because you just then, then your whole claim is, well, I'm just a sinner. And that actually is a great way of your sinful nature making a claim that defends you against the law of God in all its severity and the true nature of your sin. In fact, that claim, I'm a sinner, can even become a boast and a boast of orthodoxy. So now when I go around telling everyone, well, I'm a sinner, well, I'm the worst sinner there is, what I'm really doing is virtue signaling that I'm orthodox and more humble. I'm more orthodox than everybody else, and I'm more humble than everybody else. This is the vortex nature of this parable. You end up saying, I thank God that I'm not like these other men. I'm worse than them, and I realize I'm worse than them, and therefore I'm better than them. <laughs> but isn't that... the the? That's almost like the whole process of the Old Testament. Um, you look with the Exodus, they're God's chosen people. But there's when they're leaving, they're told there are people that are not Jews going with them. And God talks about that. Hey, you're supposed to include them. If they want to be part of it, they they practice in the, you know, all the sacrifices and all the stuff. And if they want to, they do that. And then you come along, and it, it's they get to the point where Peter is going, he says, I'm not allowed to come into your house. When he's told, when he goes down to Sam and the Tanner, he says, I'm not even allowed to go in your house. You're admitted. Mm-hmm. And that's nowhere in scripture. But that's where they move from that hypocrisy all the way through. And it, it's, it's constantly like that. Mm. It's like, the scripture where it says they, the Pharisee says you picked a grain and you are harvesting, and I said that that's actually that's actually the misquoting the scripture. They they actually lied mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and said, "Oh, you were harvesting when you were eating," and that's not so because it actually tells in the law you can do that. So, I mean, it's it's that's what I'm picking up here. If you allow yourself to do that, this is the road you're going down. You're going to become a <laughs> yeah, right. So if you're toward uh, toward define just real briefly, but toward defining a legalism, legalism would be taking the law of God as a means of earning heaven. That'd be a form of legalism. Another form of legalism would be taking things outside the scriptures and binding consciences. You have to do these things in order to be a Christian. Those would be two easily defendable biblical versions of legalism. But often what's called legalism today is just trying to follow the law of God. <laughs> that's not legalism. That's the law of God. That's St. Paul. That's Jesus. That's the small catechism. That's, you know, it's not legal. Um, now you've got, you've got a kind of scrupulosity where you're so outside of the law with your man-made regulations 
that you get more and more scrupulous and more and more binding to where no one's righteous but you. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, though, you've got a kind of lawlessness that says no man-made laws whatsoever, which is actually an impossibility. And then you say, not even the law of God. I'm totally free to do whatever I want. And that's a kind of licentiousness. And when the gospel gets described as you're free to do whatever you want, you've actually, the devil has led you right by the nose all the way around to where you started. Because you started as an utterly selfish, self-absorbed, incurvatus in say, I'm only going to do whatever I want. And he's led you by the nose all the way through the law, all the way through the gospel, right back around to where gospel freedom is. I'm going to do whatever I want and nobody's going to tell me nothing. I'm going to live my own selfish way. And now you're just convinced of your orthodoxy. So you're inoculated against any attempt to save you by law or gospel because been there, done that, and I'm free in the gospel to live as the sinner I am. So there's the licentiousness on the other side of the coin. The devil's more than happy to drag us into one or the other. And he's more than happy to try to leverage Jesus' words to confirm us in one or the other. So, Pastor? Yes, sir. When when Paul says uh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient, what would you say about that? I don't think he's talking about like murder and adultery and thievery. Uh, So what I think he's talking about there is he's talking about um, those things that are in keeping with God's law are lawful, but that's not the only question. And in fact, if you get into that text, you'll realize he's quoting back to them what they themselves have evidently said to him. So he's, he's quoting them back saying, fair enough, insofar as it goes, you're exactly right. But not all things are permissible or not all things are profitable. I forget the exact language he uses there. And that is to say that our, that as long as what we're doing is lawful and in keeping with God's word and with God's law, then we should be able to say we're free to do that thing. But it's not always that simple. If exercising that freedom leads to our brother losing his faith, then we ought not to exercise that freedom. That's the caveat with um, eating uh, eating meat or eating meat specifically sacrificed to idols or these other kinds of things and the whole weaker brother theology. That's ultimately where that goes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, great question. Great question. Yes, sir. Yeah, you too. Right. That that comes from fasting, prayer. Is that that basically where I should those are great impulses. It's a it's a very large conversation. I'll try to make it as quick as I can. So the true terrors and contrition of the heart, the true sorrow of the heart is always and, and never anything less than the gift of God. Now, it is a gift of God, though, that comes to us through means and can even be categorized in different ways. So one can, in essence, say that God has to affect this condition within me. But he's going to do that through means. What means is he going to use? 
Well, his law specifically that comes to the, the contrition or sorrow or terror over sin. So um, you can, in essence, I mean, just talking hypothetically here, wait for that to happen. <laughs> now, if you want to, as a Christian, examine yourself, then you go to that law and you reflect on that law. So you would examine yourself. This is what the small catechism is instructing us to do when it says, consider your place in life according to your Ten Commandments, according to the Ten Commandments. So that means to say, reflect on the Ten Commandments while simultaneously reflecting on the vocations, the statuses of life into which God has placed you. So don't just think of like me as an individual in the abstract, but think of me as a husband and a father, me as a Christian man, me as a citizen, these, the places and statuses in which God has put you. And now reflect on the Ten Commandments. Go slowly. Let God's word do its work within you. But that's a way of examining oneself. That's a way of cooperating with the Holy Spirit to use the language of uh, the formula of Concord, Article 2. And that's, that's a way, again, it is the word of God that affects that within us. What you will frequently find, though, is that your flesh is so, sometimes it's just so fatty, so resistant, so nonplussed that um, you're just not moved. You're not moved the way this man is moved. There it is, again, helpful to recognize that what's in the way is the fattiness of, of your own heart and the, the deadness, the coldness, the unfeelingness of your own heart. To attack the flesh with things like fasting, which is clearly something Jesus expects his disciples to do. To attack the flesh with almsgiving, sacrifice unto others. To attack the flesh with intentionally increased uh, prayers is a way of attacking that. Now, again, apart from Christ, can we do anything? Nope. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, that has a way of softening our hearts. And it is often remarkable. I I liken this under the seasons. You know, you you clean your house or you, you clean the weed bed and you go, okay, that's done. But no sooner than it's done, it's already starting to reclutter itself and the weeds grow and everything. So, the truth of the Christian life is this has a seasonal aspect and we find ourselves fat and complacent and unhealthy and we need to do the weeding. We need to do the garage cleaning. Lent is a natural time to do that. Of course, we need to fast. We need to pray. We need to give alms. And as we do these things and the fat and the unfeeling and the callous sort of diminish all of a sudden, then you're reflecting on God's word and you're moved and incredibly Again, do we get any credit for that? No, God gets the whole credit. He does it. We can do all those things until the cows come home to know a fact. Okay, but God does work through needs. He works through his word. He works through his word even when we're reflecting on ourselves. He works through his word as we obey it, as we fast, give alms, and pray. He works through those means unto the effect that we can, again, I think seasonally on account of our fallen nature, find ourselves uh, on the spectrum closer or more toward the tax collector than the Pharisee. Does that, does that kind of help flesh some of that out? Okay. Yeah. It seems like if that happens or if you do that, like when you really think about reflect on yourself and think you're doing better, 
realize it's God working through the Holy Spirit or, or whatever. It's you're not being a Pharisee. Oh yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I don't think I'm doing better. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely not. I mean, our spiritual health is something to pay attention to. And you can, I I mean, and you can, in the absolute sense, say, yeah, we're always sinners. So there's no improving that. (laughs) I mean, and that's fair enough. That never goes away. That's a kind of baseline. Um, It's even part of spiritual health. But there's nothing wrong or hypocritical or self righteous to acknowledge. I've sloughed into a place of spiritual unhealth. I'm spiritually unhealthy, the same way I might be physically unhealthy. When you're physically unhealthy, it's sometimes it's the doctor that rings that home for you or a diagnosis or your wife or a friend you haven't seen for a long time or a high school reunion or whatever your wake-up call is, where you go, I've let myself go. And what do you do? You diet, you work out, you do it, you know, eat healthy or whatever. The the same thing is is true, generally speaking, in our spiritual lives. There's spiritual health, and that spiritual health diminishes. And there's things we can do when we realize that it has diminished. We realize that it's our fault that it's diminished. We haven't been good stewards of our spiritual life. And what things do we do? We don't invent our own stuff. We grasp hold of those things that God has told us to do that we've been failing to do, examining ourselves, praying continually, fasting, giving alms. We start to do those things, and lo and behold, they have an effect. They have a, a beneficial effect. And there's very clearly times in my life where I, it's no self-righteousness. I'm a sinner before God who will save me from this body of death. But I can say I'm in a spiritually healthier place now than I was a year ago. Or I can say I'm in a spiritually worse place now than I was a year ago. These are reflections we should have as Christians, part of our stewardship. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong. What else are you going to say to a Christian if they haven't been to church in a year? You're going to say, oh, you're just as spiritually healthy as you always have been. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. And that, too, just kind of shows you that even in sanctification, there's, you know, there's ups and downs. And um, as the Lord would have it, as you're kind of going up and down, there's still an upward trajectory. There's still a growth into that full matureness of what it means to be a man. That's all what Paul's writing about in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, but yeah, there's those peaks and valleys along the way. And the worst thing we can do is buy into a theology that's just like, well, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, so that's just it. I'm just going to trust Jesus and ride it into the sunset. That's us. But you're not trusting Jesus who tells you the things you can do to help yourself and progress along the way. So it's kind of hypocrite. It's kind of hypocrisy, isn't it? I'm just going to trust Jesus and let things go. Is that what Jesus tells you to do? Your heart, how can you say you're trusting him? Right? How can you say you're following? Yeah. Okay, I've already talked too long. 735. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. And um, then next week we'll uh, jump into the next parable, which is the parable of the minus in Luke 19. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, thank you guys online for joining us. See you, uh, see you next Monday. Thanks, Pastor. Not next Monday. Not next Monday?
The twenty sixth. We have. Um, oh, I think we have uh, vacation. What? I think we're still doing it. Oh, we yeah, do. we'll still do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we'll be on the twenty sixth for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. The following week's very doubtful. It's still up in the air, but I'll probably be in Colorado. Yeah, the third, and it's Fourth of July. Maybe we'll just kind of take. I think we'll take that week off. I I think I'll be in Colorado. I'm not for sure. That's my wife's trip, so you know how that goes. Have to wait, wait and see what you're, uh, what you're told. All right, gentlemen. So for sure, next Wednesday, God or next Monday, God willing, we'll be together. All right.